The Old Pilot's Plain Tales, Rocket Man Part 2. Today we continue with our interview of Matt, spacecraft engineer with a long history of work in the spacecraft industry. And in particular, we're asking him about the early generations of telecommunications satellites. Uh, the transistors that were involved in the Telstar were, shall we say, baby transistors. We, we were at the early age of electronic development into transistors and the like compared to today. Things like OC71s, now it's just a number, but it is a device which is a transistor which has quite a good gain on it and it's got a little aluminium cap on it. If you heat the aluminium cap and unglue the glue and you take the cap off, you find yourself looking at a glass bead with a germanium or silicon chip inside it, which, believe it or not, is affected by light. It's The idea of that is that to give you an example of, of just how far we have come and just how amazing it was that this Telstar actually worked. The command uplink and the command downlink, because a spacecraft, no matter what way you look at it, spacecraft satellite is two completely separate devices. One they call the payload. That is the bit that makes you the money. That's the bit that's going to give you your television channel and your telephone calls. Sitting connected to it, but separate from it, is the telemetry and command. The bit which monitors what's going on with the payload, monitors what's going on with the electronics in the satellite or spacecraft, and forms a link back down to Earth so that you and I can sit there and look at how healthy it is, what the batteries are doing, what the charge on the batteries is like, what the output power of the payload is, whether this part of the receiver is working, and where possible, um, you build redundancy into the spacecraft or satellite so that if some part fails, you can operate a number of switches and bring in the new part and switch out the old part that's failed. If you look at Telstar, there wasn't very much of that. It was put it up there, and if it worked, it worked. If it didn't, it didn't. But the one thing that about Telstar 1 and Telstar 2 was that they were put up there as experiments. They were not designed to last a long time. It was an experiment, an expensive experiment, as to whether or not we could prove that satellites could work in communications. And not only did it work, it survived an exceedingly long time, and they were actually taken down by, believe it or not, radiation. Causes outside the uh, satellite itself. In other words, if the satellite had not been interfered with by some other means, it would probably be still there today if it hadn't dropped out of its orbit and fallen down and burned up. It was an amazing piece of equipment. Basically, it was a ball. There were, there were a number of things in the design and without getting too technical, if you look at something like a gyro, you pick up this, remember your little gyros that you started with a string. If you spin that gyro fast, it will maintain its position on a pinpoint. If you want to turn around and put something up into space, where there is nothing to stop it doing anything at all, rolling, drifting or anything, if you want it to be stable, you're going to have to spin it like a gyro or put a gyro on board. Now, we didn't have the technology to realise that we could turn around and put gyros on board things and make them stable by the effect of the gyro internally. Not in free space, anyway. So we thought, OK, let's spin it. To make it stable, 
we'll spin it at around 90 revs a minute. Why? Uh, I don't know. I'm not a scientist in that aspect, and I'm not an engineer that's looked at that aspect, but it was decided that due to the, the size and weight of the spacecraft or satellite, if we spin it around 90 revs a minute, it will remain stable. In other words, it will behave like a gyro, and therefore whatever axis we have it on from the top to the bottom, we'll call north and south, it would remain in that axis as long as it's spun. What is there to stop it spinning? Well, nothing. It's in space. So once you spin it up, it'll carry on spinning. Eventually, by nature of what space is and the gravity of the sun and the moon and the earth, it will fall into the Earth's atmosphere. But that's, for the purposes of this experiment, that was way beyond the requirements. It was not expected to last anything longer than a very short period of time. And in fact, it outlived its, its, its operational requirements by a long way. So if we spin it, we spin, take this ball and we spin it round, we uh, end up with it being stable. Brilliant. How do we get signals back and forward from the Earth? Well, telemetry and command, in other words, managing the spacecraft, do we need big bandwidth, big expensive thing? No, we don't. We haven't got much to say. So we'll stick an antenna at the top for transmit and receive. And we don't need a lot of power. So we'll make it fairly low power and that need, needs just a little tiny transistorized transmitter. And we'll bring the frequency down to something we can handle easily, down in amongst the amateur radio bands, around 130-odd megs, just below most of the amateur bands at two meters. So we can talk to it easily. We can listen to what's going on easily. Now, what about this television picture? Well, a television picture, regardless of the quality, and if you remember watching back then, the quality wasn't great, but it was a television picture and it was live and it was the first one. You need a bandwidth of around about 30 megahertz. They're a bit greedy. How do we get that down to Earth? Well, you need a bigger antenna and you need it to be pointing at the Earth. But you're spinning this thing. So how can you point an antenna at the Earth if you're spinning it? The answer is have a lot of antennas. So around the waistline of this ball spinning in space at 90 revs we have 72 transmitting antennas and 40 odd receiving antennas you need both because you've got to send a television picture up there to be received and then send it back down but the difference being you send it up via a single point and you send it down to the whole of the earth that the satellite can see so anybody that can see that satellite can get that picture coming down there's your first bit of global communications. This is the biggest step we ever made. All of a sudden, you can turn around and say, I can point a satellite signal up to the satellite from one place on the Earth. And because this thing is spinning and because the spacecraft is this far away from the Earth, it can see the whole of that face of the Earth, that half of the Earth. Therefore, anybody on the Earth can see that satellite. Therefore, anybody on the Earth can receive that picture course it was a very tiny signal by the time it came back to earth uplink was about two kilowatts in a directional signal the size of a pencil beam so that two kilowatts after it went through the atmosphere and got cut down and resisted by the atmosphere and so on arrived at the spacecraft at a very low level but still fairly strong coming out of the spacecraft was a signal from a valve and have i got some paperwork here i can tell you what the power was it couldn't have been more than a few watts anyway. Why could it only have been a few watts? Well, the spacecraft was running on solar panels and batteries, and you can't put a car battery into a satellite 
because it costs you too much to launch it. Because for every pound in weight you want to launch, you need two pounds of fuel to get it up there. So the power coming out of this traveling wave tube's got to be fairly small, which means by the time that signal gets down to Earth, it's about one hundredth of what it started at. So if you're transmitting to the spacecraft at two kilowatts and five kilowatts from Goonhilly, and you're trans- Goonhilly, Goonhilly, huge, huge dish. It's still there today. It's still working. It's still used. Uh, it is about 60 feet in diameter. It may even be more than that. Indeed it is. Goon Hilly has a diameter of 85 feet. Um, it focuses, the whole idea is it's a parabolic antenna. Sitting about 40 feet away from the parabolic dish is the receiving and transmitting bit. Basically what happens is the signal coming from the spacecraft comes down, bounces into the dish. Because of the shape of the dish, it is focused to this single point. So you're getting gain. You're grabbing signals, little tiny bits of signal, and you're focusing it onto this single point. So you had masses of gain from this huge dish. Our scientists realized that this was going to be a tiny signal coming down. So (laughs) you're losing huge amounts of your signal coming down. Now, sending a signal up, we got five kilowatts. So that's the equivalent of five kettles boiling at once. So that's, that's going up to the spacecraft. Coming down to the spacecraft, you've already got five thousandths of that signal coming out because you can't power anything bigger. So the amount now you take that five watts and you take that down and you reduce that, you need a big dish. So the technology on the ground to receive and transmit to the satellite was way, way, way more than the technology on the satellite itself. But that shouldn't diminish from the fact that the satellite itself was quite amazing. If you look at today, how many satellites are up there? Uh, They estimate just over 32,000, and it's growing. And they estimate it's going to be in the hundreds of thousands. Satellite spacecraft, bits of stuff in space doing things. Our biggest problem that we are seriously looking at today is there is so much stuff up there, it's getting crowded. One of the things I was reading up on the other day was that if something comes out of its orbit and it hits something else, it's likely to be something like a domino pile. Hundreds of dominoes all lined up behind the other. You trigger one and they will start to fall. There are so many in low Earth orbit that if something hits something, it's going to start this domino principle. It's just going to spread like wildfire and take out hundreds of bloody spacecraft up there. It's just crazy. You asked me to bring you back to the spacecraft and its waveguides. Oh, yes, yeah. In those days, we talked about thousands of megahertz. These days, we talk about gigahertz, which is the shortened version of the same thing. Um, Yeah, here we go. Um, The uplink was 6,425 million cycles per second, and the downlink, 4,200. We're now going up into the thousands of megahertz, which is very difficult to achieve. I mean, a traveling wave tube was a brilliant invention to get into microwaves, as we call it, because this this sort of frequency is just it's about half what your microwave oven is today. This was some incredible achievement uh, to put this sort of technology into space. A traveling wave tube is a valve. 
this this travelling wave tube was made of metal. It was by far the heaviest part on the on on the satellite, but it was really pushing the edges of technology in those days. To get into what went on, you would feed a very low level signal in at one end. You would take a much higher level signal out the other end, in the principle of a valve. Um, how could you say it? Well, it required a small amount of current at a high voltage. So you had to develop the high voltage. You got gain by the fact that you passed a current through this valve and you then change the amount, the way the current is affected by feeding in the information you want along the side of the stream. Brilliant in its technology. I jump back to something else too, which is where the technology really takes off. You'll notice that I said 6,425 megahertz downlink, 4,200 megahertz uplink. They're totally different from each other. So if I transmit a video signal going up to the spacecraft being carried on a 6,424 megahertz, how do I get it back down to 4,200? The simple answer is take the signal that I want off the carrier when I get it up there, move it across and put it back on to the carrier to come down. And in fact, that's what you do. So you actually take your television picture off the signal going up, move it across as a television video picture to the transmitter and put it back onto the carrier to send it down. Now, if you think about that, that's like having a transmitter between you and me. I pick up my little radio, I press the transmit button, my voice gets sent by radio across to your receiver, your receiver then takes the voice off the received signal and puts it onto a speaker. Now take what I've just taken off your speaker and move it across to another transmitter and transmit it down. You've now got a spacecraft. Because what I've done is I've said, right, I transmit it to you. You now take it off, turn it into the voice, move it across to another transmitter and transmit it somewhere else. There's your spacecraft, your bit. So it's the technology here i mean telstar is so far ahead of anything we've ever dreamt of before as an experiment it's brilliant it's doing so many things at once it's a receiver it's a receiver which takes it down to a television picture it takes that television picture and it hands it over to a modulator which turns around and puts it on the traveling wave tube to send it out on a different frequency to all over the earth on 72 aerials because it's spinning round. I mean, when you start to look at something like this, you start to realise just how incredible this whole thing was and how many brains it had to put together to get this to actually work. Um, we take it all for granted. We turn round, we turn on our television and we, we, we have our satellite dish on. My motorhome, for example, I got a satellite dish which finds the satellite I wanted to find out of the 42 that are on that swing that I can see. It locks onto it, it brings down the signal, it decodes it, it puts it on my television at the press of a button. Go all the way back to the likes of Telstar and you are at the very start of how on earth do we find this little tiny ball racing round the earth, appearing every two hours and 40 minutes, 
lasting in our view for about 35, 40 minutes, disappearing again, and we're going to have to find it next time it comes round. You are at a situation here where we knew so little. The brains behind this were incredible. You could turn around and you had literally to say, where is it going to appear next time? The maths involved in that. Today, that maths is all done on a little tiny processor chip sitting in my antenna dish on the roof of my mobile home. There were guys with slide rules sitting there working this out every time this spacecraft, where's it going to go? Oh, it's in this orbit, it's moved half a degree, I need to work out when it gets right round the other side of the Earth, where is it going to appear in my azimuth and elevation? Where am I going to point this ruddy great big dish at Goonilly to find this thing next time around? And it worked. They did it time after time after time. And each time they did it, they got a bit cleverer at it. They realized a bit more. But this is the first time. This is experimentation like you wouldn't believe. Was it incredible? Yes. Did it make people wonder at what's going on? Absolutely. It was the start of everything we have today. And we take it for granted. It's it's sad. People turn around and say, oh, I've got Sky Television. Oh, I've got 150 channels. Well, my satellite dish that I've got on the top of my motorhome can receive 44 different spacecraft and 6,500 different television channels if I want to. Go all the way back to 1962. One television channel. Noisy, grey, not the best lock. I mean, it was just amazing. Um... We, we don't realise, we don't, and it's sad that we don't teach enough about it because it was amazing steps forward to everything we take for granted. Absolutely. It's been brilliant listening to you, giving us a little um, peek into uh, the history of spacecraft and how they all work. Thanks very much indeed. My pleasure. Thank you. Plane to House is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. And to find out about that, just go to airlinepilotguy.com. Plane Tales is also its own podcast. And if you're interested in helping us along, why not leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Many thanks and great to have you listening.